We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real Steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. Uh, we will be talking about the huge legal decision uh, regarding the U.S. women's national team that came down this week. We'll be talking about Ooh, Gareth Bale and where his future may lay. We're going to be talking about some sports specialization uh, at a young age. Is that good? Is that bad? The uh, Newcastle takeover, which has dominated some of the headlines around the world, given how big Newcastle is and what could possibly happen. We're going to round up all the leagues out there, at least for where they are at this moment. We know it's constantly changing, but for right now, we're going to look at all the leagues and what they're doing and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light. David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mossy, on this Sunday morning? I am well. I know you're going to have a pretty big name drop coming in a minute, so I'll get mine out of the way first. <laughs> We're taping this on a Sunday morning. Uh, last night, I took part in a video call with some of our colleagues. Keith Costigan was on it briefly. Jovan Karofsky, who is an avid listener of this podcast, uh, doesn't agree with anything we say, but nevertheless enjoys listening every week. Ian Joy, who had his two beautiful young kids uh, with him. It was nice to see them. And then the great Warren Barton and I chatted about the Newcastle takeover, which, as you mentioned, is one of the topics on today's podcast. So it was fun to see them uh, first time in several weeks. So um, good times. Uh, are you, like me, coming to the uh, bottom of the barrel when it comes to uh things to watch. I mean, I know you have your go-tos and obviously we're recording this on a Sunday. So the Jordan thing's going to happen again for everybody here today, but uh, it, it is slim pickings uh, right now when I'm clicking through some of these things now. Yeah, very much so. Uh, I am uh, banging through Ozark. I'm already in the middle of season three, so I'll be uh, caught up with that in the next 48 hours. Tonight is the final part of the HBO Atlanta child murder documentary. Then Monday night is the season finale of My Brilliant Friend. The Jordan thing will go on for another couple of weeks after this. But once you hit like mid-May, yeah, I'm going to be in a dangerous inflection point there. I got to kind of restock and come up with a whole new batch of things to, to watch. Well, as you mentioned, uh, I did have an interesting encounter this week uh, over on uh, Indoor Soccer, our weekly soccer magazine that you can find every Sunday. And now starting uh, next week on Mondays on FS1, myself, uh, Stu Holden and 
Rob Stone with a host of other uh, guests along the way. We scored a wonderful guest in the form of Jurgen Klopp this week. And by the time you hear this, it will, have, it will have been out. He was as joyful and as playful and as wonderful as he often seems to folks out there. Whether you like Liverpool or not really doesn't matter. I think you can appreciate the joy and the passion that he brings and obviously the success that he brings. Even uh, asked if I was still playing the guitar. I got a chance to pull out the guitar and crank out some scorpions for him uh, on the show. So, so that was fun. It was fun to see him and obviously to talk to him about what he's going through, what his team is going through. I mean, he is, you know, he is a treasure, I think, for not just soccer, but I think the world. And I think what we, what we found in talking to him was he's got some perspective. And maybe it's easier to have perspective when you're on the top uh, and you, you have all these great players and everything has gone very, very well. But I think he really understands that while he and all of us love this game and have a passion for it, it pales in comparison to everything else. And everything that he said, I think, was, was couched with the understanding that, that when this comes back, uh, and he does believe it, it comes back, um, it will come back in, in due time when things are safe. And just because he is the coach and the manager for one of the most popular and biggest clubs in the world, doesn't mean that it takes precedent uh, over obviously anything having to do with safety or anything else like that. And that, that came out, but also his, his joy. And I think it's not, it's not childish. Um, it's, it's just a genuine uh, joy. Like I said, in how fortunate he is to be doing what he is doing. And I think that that translates ultimately into where his success is. So it was fun to see someone who lived up to some of the things that we've seen from the outside on a more personal perspective, talking to him, uh, on the uh, indoor soccer show. So that was fun. Oh, excellent. What a big get for you guys. This show has really uh, been a success. Huh? Well, you mentioned Keith Costigan. Uh, shout out to him. He has wonderful connections and a relationship with the folks over at Liverpool and, uh, and was able to access some of those uh, as, were, uh, as were others. And we thank uh, Jurgen for coming on uh, this week as you know, uh, Commissioner Garber came on. Uh, so it was fun. Jamie Carragher came on. Uh, we did some digital stuff with him. So uh, I think everybody recognizes, as we've talked about many times, that this is this is the market. It was good for him. It was good for all of the coaches if they get an opportunity to talk to the United States, an emerging market here. And obviously with Major League Soccer and all opportunities, you never want to close any types of doors. So I think that there's a method to uh, any type of madness in terms of a coach like that or a high profile coach like that coming on. But it was great. It was, uh, it, it was fun. We had, a, uh, we had a good time and you can check that out. There'll be more clips of it through the, uh, through the weekend re-airs of the, uh, the indoor soccer show. Mossy, we got a big show today here. There's still plenty to talk about, all sorts of stuff going on. Are you ready to light the candle? Yep. All right. We are going to dive right into this because this was a Friday night do, uh, news dump, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen in a while, uh, in the form of a ruling that came down. And we've been following this now for, gosh, it seems, seems like years, and it probably has been years, the, you know, the constant court battle with uh, the United States Women's National Team uh, and the United States Soccer Federation over equal pay and, and equity of pay and uh, the potential for uh, discriminatory practices when it comes to how they, have been, uh, how they have been paid. So a summary judgment comes down. And look, I'm not a lawyer. Not, you're not a lawyer. I've read enough of these articles here to know that a summary judgment is important. It is you know, something that comes down. And basically what happened was the United States Soccer Federation uh, prevailed in terms of uh, the things that we are talking about when it comes to the discriminatory practices on a number of fronts, not the least of which is the actual money. 
this uh, was a surprise to a certain extent for some, but not, not to others. They still have the opportunity, I'm talking about the women's team, still have the opportunity to continue in court when it comes to problems uh, with air travel, hotel, medical, and that kind of stuff. But the, the bulk of the, uh, of the decision focuses on the actual, uh, the actual money. Uh, so now everybody's talking about this, how, because, you know, this was, this was not just soccer news. This, this transcended the sport. This was news out there because of the high profile of the women's team, of the individual players, and what this meant, not just for women's soccer players, but for the law and for women and for women's athletes uh, out there. So here's, I'll let you go here in a second, but my, my initial thought when this came out was, Winning in the court of public opinion is very, very different than winning in the court uh, of law. And while, and we've said this before, while you may have a case uh, that you feel is incredibly solid because of the reaction that you get publicly, and let's make no mistake about it, in the court of public opinion, the women won hands down, it wasn't even a question going in. But when you get in front of a court of law, it might not hold up. And that's obviously what, uh, what happened here. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't appeal, but it's very, very difficult from what I've read and from what I, what I see for this to change on appeal going forward. It doesn't mean it can't, but uh, this, was, this was a big blow to the women's side uh, of the argument. Now, when it comes to the United States Soccer Federation, obviously this is a win. But even when the United States Soccer Federation wins, it loses because they are still in a situation right now where they have painted themselves as villains. And just because a court of law has held up their argument and their defense doesn't mean that they aren't still villains in the eyes of the public out there. And you know that, that is a problem. Optics are important. I understand precedent. Uh, I completely understand that, but how the United States Soccer Federation is viewed, especially over the last couple of years with what's happened, I can't think of a time when it's been at a lower point. Now, we've seen all sorts of things that have come out even over the last 24 hours, the last 48 hours, even presidential candidate Joe Biden coming out in favor of the women. That was a hell of a card for them to play, uh, talking about withholding funding if uh, they're not paid equally. I don't know what funding he's talking about, but you know, still, that's a, that's, a, that's a hell of a card for them to be able to play there. Really what this comes down to when I, when, when I read the, uh, you know, the arguments of the court is that the U.S. women signed a contract in the form of a CBA that they didn't like and that they thought not just was unfair, but was unlawful. They took it to the court. The court disagreed. Okay. And now we're, to a certain extent, right back where we started. Now, the U.S. women are going to get a new deal. And they're going to be paid more, but their leverage and power that they had is much less right now than it was 48 hours ago because, uh, because of this ruling. And as I said before, they are going to still find a way to get a new deal done that will pay them more, probably more than the United States Soccer Federation had to pay had they not gone through all of this process. But that's for another, a different day to, uh, to discuss. Have I framed that correctly in terms of your reading of the situation right now? Yes, uh, and I have several thoughts. Uh, we'll take them one by one. First off, obviously it would have been in the best interest of the U.S. women for all the negative publicity to compel U.S. soccer to settle sometime in the last few weeks. 
The women were given a gift in that regard with the controversy surrounding the legal briefing and Carlos Cordero resigning and Cindy Parlocone assuming the presidency. And I've seen a lot of criticism of why didn't they seize on that moment and get a deal done then and there, which I guess is fair, but you also have to take into account this incredible crisis we've been dealing with in the last two months that sort of disrupted everybody's day-to-day lives. And so, you know, it made it a lot more difficult to get all the parties in one place and to hammer out a deal. So I think, you know, you, you can't sort of analyze this without sort of taking into consideration the larger issue that we're all dealing with and how that might have perhaps, I don't want to say distracted the U.S. women, but in a sense, yeah, I mean, they, they sort of, they, they weren't operating under normal circumstances here. And, and I want to be very, very clear, just because uh, they you know, came down on the wrong side of this decision, right? Of, of late, doesn't make their fight not valid. And I, whether I agree or disagree, if you feel that you have been wronged from a legal perspective, I can appreciate and respect that you are going to fight for what you believe in, for what you believe is fair, for what you believe is, is lawful. And that's, you know, that, that doesn't change. But I also believe in, in honoring contracts. I do believe in honoring deals that you do. You know, if, if they are to get, you know, if, if the women now do get a new deal, whatever that, and that, whatever that, that, that looks like, who's to say they're going to honor it? Who's to say they're going to continue to, uh, to, to abide by it? I think they will. I, I think that this will get sorted out. And maybe this certainly pushes it to a point where it does get sorted out. Not to the extent that, as I said, 48 hours, it might have been sorted out. But this forces people even more so to get together and figure out a way to get, uh, to get something done. There will, still, there will be that, hopefully, that kumbaya moment where everybody's up there, everybody says good things about it. United States Soccer Federation, interesting, while we certainly have taken them to task over the last couple of years with some of the things they have said and done, especially from a public perspective, it was interesting that there was no dancing, there was no beating of the chest or anything like that. It was simply, we look forward to continuing to work with uh, the women going forward. And keep in mind that this comes off of a pretty precarious and, uh, and crazy type of last few months with their existing council getting, getting changed and all that. And obviously, the complete mess of a filing that they made and the defense from a public perspective uh, that, they, that they put on, that they then retracted. And so this is, you know, this is a big, big win for the United States Soccer Federation from a legal perspective. But as we said, from a public perception perspective and that court of public opinion, they're still in the same place. And I would argue they might even have been shaded even more as bad guys because, uh, because of this. But it doesn't change the fact that there is a deal to be done. I hope that, uh, hope that deal gets done. And it's also an important lesson, I guess you will, of the nuances and the depth and the complicated and complex nature of something like this. It's very, very easy in a tweet or it's very easy on a podcast or something like that to say, to give a soundbite that, that you think encapsulates all of this and all, all the nuance. And, you know, for example, people coming to the realization here that in the portion that the, that the lawsuit dealt with, the court actually said that the women's team made more money. And for, for so long, we were told they don't make as much money. Now, you can shade it different ways, and I'm sure people will spin it and, and argue different ways going forward. But you know, this, this was not as simple as the United States Soccer Federation 
doesn't like women or the United States Soccer Federation doesn't believe that women should be paid equally to men. Um, and I think sometimes the court, maybe more so than, than anything out there, is able to cut through all of that and get to the essence and ultimately the truth is. And sometimes the truth hurts and sometimes the truth isn't what you want to hear. And in a certain sense, they may have done that and give, given all of us an opportunity to look at things from a different angle and to see things a little bit uh, differently. In no way does that, do I think that it's going to deter the women from what they feel is an injustice going, going forward. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of pressure right now to get this deal done. And I think it will get done. You know, we've spoken about this before, but I do think the differing club country dynamics uh, between men's and women's soccer rear their ugly heads here. The men are able to negotiate a deal which treats the national team from a financial standpoint as a side gig. Their main job, their main source of income is their club. And so they're able to negotiate a very bonus laden CBA contract with U.S. soccer while the women rely on the national team as their main source of income. So they have to uh, negotiate a higher salary, more guarantees, and, and maybe not as big of bonuses. And so uh, now listen, the women claim that they've never been offered the same bonuses that the men receive. And so had they been offered that exact same deal, they would have taken it. So that, that's a whole element here, which I suspect will be in their appeal. That's what they're going to try to argue. But nevertheless, even if you think the women have a case here and they deserve equal pay, I continue to say it's in the best long-term interest of women's soccer to grow the club side of the game. To me, there's just something inherently out of whack about the national team being your main job, and you're going against the grain of how this sport is structured and how it's meant to operate. Yeah, easier said than done, though, uh, as, as we know, and our, our past is littered with defunct leagues, and in a, in a sport in even the men's game that is fraught with risk, uh, in, in American professional soccer, the women's is, is that much more. But, you know, as you said, hopefully that becomes a case where they're able to make enough money where it's not the main gig that's going, uh, that's going forward. But ultimately, and you know, everybody signs these contracts, everybody has representation, hopefully capable and competent type of representation that advises them what to do. You have contracts, uh, you hope that uh, people live up to them. From a legal perspective, I think that that's part of what the courts, uh, the courts were saying is that this is the contract that you decided uh, and your representation negotiated for you to sign. Uh, you believe that this was the best type of contract, especially when you compared it and contrasted with what the men were signing. And this is what you signed, and this is what we are asking you to live up to. And in no way, you know, because I, you know, I often say that you are worth what you can legally negotiate. And... No, I'm not, I'm not, if you believe that what you negotiated was unlawful and illegal in that sense, then absolutely you have, you have, my, you know, we have uh, my support in going after it. And they still probably do believe that is. And that may be overturned in appeal. This is a forever twisting and turning type of saga that we have going on, uh, going on right now. And we've already seen the public reaction from Joe Biden on down from people that can't fathom that this could happen. I know there's politics involved and there's baggage and all that stuff that, come, that comes along. But, you know, that, that power and that leverage of the court of public opinion, that's, that's not going away. As a matter of fact, it's probably only increasing. And so they have been very, very smart 
and strategic and how they have tried to use that and harness that power and leverage uh, from a women's perspective for the women's team, both individually and collectively. I'll be really interested to see what their, what their next move is. But it is getting, you mentioned, because of the world that we now live in over the last couple of months, it, it, well, I recognize that it's important. But its, important has, its importance has been diminished, if, if, if you understand what I'm saying. It's, what are we doing here? What, <laughs> why, why are we continuing to fight? And, and, and in doing so, the time that is being lost, the opportunities that are being lost, the money that is being spent, if we could have had that at our disposal, will we be that much further along? And there, will those, there are those out there that would probably say, you know, it's worth it. It's worth it because this is what we believe. And this is how we feel we have been, been wronged. And I, I, I can respect that. But I'm looking forward to a day when we don't have to worry about these things. And everybody has something that they believe is fair and just. And we can get back to concentrating on being the best possible federation and indirectly the best possible soccer playing nation that we can be because all of this hinders our development. All of this hinders our ability to move forward. So I hope, and I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I hope at some point this can get solved. I hope that there's a way to bring it, to bring together, get that deal done where the women are happy. The men are going to be right around the corner. Uh, I know some folks out there have put out the, uh, the possibility of both the men and women coming together and negotiating together. I'm not sure that that's something that either side is going to want to do just based on, based on history. And while the men certainly don't look at the Federation as their primary income source, I also feel that they're not going to want to necessarily do things and give up things that, uh, that ultimately would go to the women. And by the way, the women who have proven and have the potential in the future to earn a, a tremendous amount of money, they might not want to give that up uh, to the men's side because there will be that sharing. So I don't know if that, that ends up being something that happened. If it did, it would be really, really interesting to see where everybody's in the same boat together, uh, both the men and women's side, and have to work together and have to accept it. And if that maybe connection and that joining together of forces ultimately makes the best possible sense and a lot of these problems uh, go away with the recognition that there is that connection. I don't know. Mossy, anything before we go? Yeah, I mean, one more point I want to make on this. You, you already mentioned it, but I think it's worth highlighting. It is incredibly ironic that the women have kind of rubbed the men's noses in the fact that we win, you don't, we're more successful than you. And they cherry pick years, 2015 to 2019, in which the women were especially successful. They won two World Cups while the men were especially unsuccessful, failing to qualify for a World Cup, thinking that that would help their argument. But it actually ended up working against them because the men were so unsuccessful during those years that they played uh, fewer games, collected less bonuses, and so actually earned less money than the women over that period. And so the judge looked at that and said, wait, what are you talking about? The period of time you picked, the women earned more money than the men. Now, the women, I think, have a fair argument that, wait a minute, we shouldn't have to be so much better than the men to earn more uh, money than them. Equal pay means if the results are more or less the same, then the money is more or less the same. That's really the true spirit of equal pay. But nevertheless, it is kind of ironic that the men's lack of success in a way worked against the women here. Yeah, but the court's responsibility is to focus and look at the parameters that they were given. Okay. And so that's on the women. If, 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 if they don't like the period of time that they, they, that they were talking about or that was un, under discussion right now, then talk to your representation. So, you know, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, uh, we'll, ha we'll see what happens going, going forward. You know, we still have the best 
women's national team in the world. We still have arguably some of the best individual uh, national team players in the world when it comes to our women's side. And it is still night and day in terms of the success and the consistency of success when it comes to our men and women. And I can see your little mind working right now that you want to add something before we go. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I just, I don't envy Cindy Parlo Cohen because I think she is in such a weird spot here as a former U.S. Women's National Team player, but now the president of the Federation. So her job is to try to fight for the best interests of the Federation, but also I'm sure she feels a certain, in her heart, a certain allegiance to the, what the women are fighting for. So it's going to be interesting to see how she plays this because she is in such a tough spot. Ah, she's going to be fine. She's going to come <laughs> out of this smelling like a rose. Let me tell you, she's either going to come out being the great communicator and the great uniter that ultimately on her watch this was finally done nobody else could do it but she was able to do it and then she says thank you very much and rides off into the sunset as that champion and as that heroine or she's just going to parlay it into another four years well not another four years but her first four years uh of a uh, of a re-election that's going to come about next february so i think she's going to be just fine don't worry about her Ask Alexi. All right, Mossy, it's uh, time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi and send us some questions, comments, concerns out there on all the social media platforms. And we pick a few each week and read them off as we're about to do here. What do the people want to know this week, Mossy? First up, at A. Robinson, 1987, thoughts on the possibility of Gareth Bale joining MLS? Is this in relation to any specific reports out there or just a general feeling that this could possibly happen, which is nothing new? We've talked about this before. Gareth Bale gave an interview a few days ago in which uh, he spoke very positively of MLS and said it's, it's always intrigued him to eventually end up there. So I think it is something that, that has a good chance of happening. Well, let me see. Let's think about a high profile type of team that is looking to make a big splash that certainly has money behind it to pay someone uh, like him, but maybe even more importantly as part of the equation, I don't know, is, is in an area where year round you can play golf on some of the best golf courses in the world, would there be a state or an area or region Mossy that would possibly fit that criteria? I assume you're talking about Miami? I am talking about Miami. I don't see him going to Columbus. I don't see him going to a number of other places. I do see him looking at uh, Major League Soccer as a possible uh, destination. And you know, while I'm, I'm a little bit making fun of the, the golf part of it, we know that it is a huge, huge part of his life. He loves to golf and the ability to make a good chunk of money in a place that certainly he and his family would be very happy and for him to be able to train and then play golf on a daily basis, I think that would be incredibly attractive to him. Now, he's going to be able to play golf for the rest of his life no matter what, but I still feel that this type of setting for someone like him in, in, in particular uh, really looks like uh, something that, uh, that could happen. Now, the other possibility is you know, for him to return, I guess, well, to England but where, where would he go? So to answer your question, Mr. Robinson, 1987, I would give it a 60, 64.7% chance that Gareth Bale goes to Major League Soccer. What about you, Moss? Do you think that that's a possibility? 
Uh, yeah, I think he eventually ends up here. You know, I thought uh, when Zlatan left the Galaxy that Bale would be an interesting replacement. Not a like-for-like -like replacement in a footballing sense, obviously. They're different kinds of players. But in terms of filling that big international star void, they obviously opted for Chicharito instead. But I, I, I thought Bale might have made some sense for the Galaxy. So I, I do think he'll end up here eventually. Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a good shout. All right, what else? At David Jocelyn 7 what's your take on the Newcastle United takeover? Oh, wow. This story. First off, anything that involves Newcastle is automatically just amped up, okay? Which is one of the reasons why it is, it is oftentimes in the news. It's because of the incredible support. We've, you know, we've, it's legendary, the type of support that they have, 60,000 every single game, regardless of what division, regardless of what is going on, incredible passion and love and devotion to the club and what it represents for that area. So we come to find out that there's a uh, takeover, I guess, uh, is what they're, uh, what they're calling it over there. And that's not, that sounds a little more menacing than it actually is. You know, it's not as if they're not buying it. They're buying it, I think it's uh, right now, for 300 million pounds, uh, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know what that is in dollars, Mossy. What do you got for... Yeah, I mean, let me, I'll just run through the quick basics here. I mean, Newcastle, as you mentioned, proud club in the 90s that were contending for Premier League titles, reaching FA Cup finals, playing in the Champions League. They've fallen on hard times. They've been relegated twice in the last 12 years. They have this very unpopular owner, Mike Ashley, who doesn't spend any money and he's been trying to sell the club. And he's very close to doing so finally for, as you mentioned, 300 million pounds to this consortium, which the face of it is this British businesswoman, Amanda Staveley, but all the money is coming from Saudi Arabia. It's this Saudi public investment fund. The chairman of it is the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. So this is basically the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is buying a Premier League club. And so, you know, th this is uh, obviously generated some controversy. The, the deal's been held up for a couple of weeks. The Premier League is, is looking into it. There, there's two issues here. Uh, obviously, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia has been accused of some human rights violations. And also, uh, and, and this seems to be the bigger obstacle, actually. They've been accused of illegally broadcasting Premier League games the last few years. They've been embroiled in a whole legal yeah. battle with the Premier League. So some people are looking at it and saying, boy, how can the Premier League sign off on this takeover? So we'll see. This would make Newcastle the richest club in the Premier League by far, even dwarfing Manchester City. So overnight, we would have another one of these super clubs. So Newcastle fans seem to be all for it. They've already been linked with Mauricio Pochettino as manager and world-class players like Coutinho and Modric. So we'll see. But again, you know, we cover the Bundesliga where they're fiercely proud of their 50 plus one model. And this is the kind of stuff they point to. And they say, you know, we don't want to go the route of the Premier League. The Premier League has quote unquote sold out and sold its soul. Well, Premier League folk bristle at that and say, you're just jealous of the financial power and prestige of the Premier League. So, I mean, what do you make of all that? It comes down to a simple question. How badly do you want to win because winning equates to money first thing that anybody asks if you're a manager coming in uh, or if you're a fan uh, or anybody else that's affiliated with the club and some ownership comes in is how much do we have to spend how much are you going to enable us to spend because then you say well i'm in this level or i'm in this level and this level and so what are you willing to accept in order to have that money that then not just theoretically, because it's been proven, enables you to hedge your bets by going out and buying better players and therefore being a better team. And how much are you willing to ignore, I guess? Now, look, it should be stated that there's plenty of international ownership when it comes to the EPL. And there has been for a number of years. And I mean, the top is just completely heavy, whether it's Liverpool with the US, City with the UAE, Leicester with uh, Thailand, with Chelsea with Russia, 
Manchester United with the U.S., Wolves with China. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, uh, Arsenal with the U.S. But all foreign ownership is not created equally, okay? And not all foreign ownership, look, all foreign ownership in and of itself comes with the baggage of being foreign ownership. And that's, that comes from pride and nationalistic type of feeling. And I completely get that. I get it when it's, when it's over here in the United States. I get it when it's in, uh, in the UK and, and that type of ownership is coming in. So it depends on what you're going to do with that ownership. But the baggage that people are concerned about here, okay, first off, it transcends the actual game of, uh, of soccer and sports and goes into uh, you know, the, uh, the countries and the individuals that, in, that are involved and human rights types of uh, situations. So if you are a Newcastle fan, are you willing to look the other way to some of these things that are absolutely real and fair to talk about when an ownership group comes in like this that includes this type of ownership from uh, Saudi Arabia? Are you prepared to look the other way or ignore these types of things in order to have that team that is competitive because of the money that, it, that it's brought in? And I guess it's a a moral dilemma. It's a moral quandary out there. And I think more often than not, and this isn't a, a judgment of humans in, in that area. So I guess it's just a, a statement on humans. There's a lot of people that say, yeah, I just want my team to win. And I could look down the line and I can find something wrong with every single owner, whether it's domestic or international out there that I don't like, but I like winning more. And, you know, that's the world that we have created. And that is the league that has been created with these super clubs and with this influx of international money. And I think ultimately this gets done. But you said you talked to uh, our good friend Warren Barton. What were his thoughts, a, a legend when it comes to Newcastle? Well, you know, he, he's in favor of it. He's excited. Now, to be fair to Warren, we didn't really delve into all sure. these issues in great detail. I just sort of asked him what he thought of it. And he gave it kind of a big thumbs up. Because again, you know, Newcastle fans have been frustrated with Mike Ashley for years and, and they're just happy to have the club in somebody else's hands that, that is willing to spend money to compete. So uh, I think that's kind of how they're looking at it. I, I reading articles and scrolling down to the comment section. I know a lot of Newcastle fans feel like if this was Manchester United or Liverpool, this would have been rubber stamped right away. And they're their, their conspiracy minds are working here. They think the elite teams in the Premier League are threatened by Newcastle and don't want this added competition. And so that's why right. this has become a bigger story than it needed to be. So who knows? I mean, I would just say spare a thought for Alex Dowd, our producer, because the way things are going, pretty soon Roman Abramovich is going to be one of the half-nots in the Premier League. Wow. I mean, his, his net worth of £9 billion now is like, like nothing. I mean, pretty soon Newcastle are going to be buying players and loaning them to Chelsea. You know, that's where they're going to stash their... their... <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I, you know, I think it gets done. I think uh, money talks, ultimately, and it's a lot of money. And I think there is... And, and first off, as you mentioned, it's a, uh, it's a trio there that are, that are part of it. Uh, you mentioned the real estate firm and the uh, venture capitalist. Um, and then obviously this uh, PIF, who the head is, uh, Mohammed bin Salam, the Saudi prince. And they're going to have to answer questions and they're going to have to justify it. But they're going to probably do it after having already bought the team and that train will have left the station. But then they're also going to have to spend that money and then that money is going to have to be spent well. And unless you know, somebody is able to 
identify the next Alan Shearer out there coming in. They still have to prove to me that they can spend that money. But you are hedging, uh, you are hedging your bets out there. Anything else, Mossy, on uh, uh, the Newcastle situation? Uh, no. Uh, we'll end on this. At Damu Bob, do you agree or disagree with this move? When should kids pick a sport? And he, what he's alluding to is that Bayern Munich are getting rid of their U9 and U10 teams because they want to allow kids at that age uh, the opportunity to play other sports and to develop with less pressure. What did you make of that? Well, basically, it's Bayern Munich uh, and, and maybe some other teams saying, we recognize that specialization is something that is happening and now has been happening for a number of years. But what we're going to concentrate on is uh, the benefits of specialization at being a kid. And I commend them because I think it is beneficial and important. I do think it's a little apples and oranges when it comes to what's happening in a country like Germany, as opposed to the United States. And sometimes it's, it's a false equivalency in that while that is happening, that specialization in being a kid from zero to 10, you are still growing up in a soccer centric culture in Germany. Soccer is still the pinnacle. Soccer is still, by a long shot, the most popular. There's not even a competitor close to it, okay? As opposed to a kid who's growing up in the United States from zero to 10, who is playing other sports and doing all that, they are growing up in a country where soccer is not king and is not even close to king relative to uh, basketball, football, and baseball. So it's a little bit different. Having said all that, I know that I was a better athlete because I participated in multiple sports. The problem is, is that the specialization train left the station a long time ago and we're not getting it back. I can grumpy old man, man at all that I want and I can talk about the good old days and I wish that we could still have that, but that's not going to change. And it, it starts with the, the parents and it starts just with the, the, the practical realization that the more you do something, the better you are going to get, okay? And that's not a, that's not a false type of theory. That, that, is, that, that is proven. You practice, like in anything in life, you practice, the more you practice, the better, the better you get. The question is, starting a kids at really, really early ages, is that, is that beneficial? I guess it depends also on what you want to achieve with, 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 those, with those kids. I know, as I said, from a physical perspective, playing other sports. I grew up, I actually played more hockey growing up at times than I played, uh, played soccer, but I also at different levels participated with basketball and baseball, even track, cross country, that type of stuff uh, that I did. And I learned from all of that. And whether it was the movements or whether it was the different groups uh, of athletes that I encountered, uh, whether it was different mindset or tactics that involved, all of those different things helped me as an athlete and made me a better soccer player. And I do believe a better person, but we can't, we can't have that again. And so what I think possibly could happen is as we are specializing and having that specialization from a soccer perspective in the United States, within that specialization from zero to 10, that's where it's the responsibility of the club and, and then the coaches to say, well, within my elite soccer training, I'm actually not even going to train soccer all the time. That's where you can possibly add this element. If you make it part of the actual specialization uh, 
process. And in, in essence, that's really what they're doing here by saying that they're not, you know, uh, in, in, uh, in Bayern Munich over there in Germany. That's really what, what they are doing because the entire culture of Germany is really a specialization type of pro- process because it is, uh, because it is a soccer centric type of, uh, uh, type of culture over there. But I would love to be able to force kids. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if you force them, but I would love to be able to say you have to play all these other sports. That's not going to happen because somebody else is going to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. And therefore, I'm going to be that much more ahead. But in this specialization time that we live, we are so hyper-focused on producing better athletes. And we never talk about the 99.9% of them that don't make it. And don't whatever that make it is, college scholarship, professional, whatever it ends up being, that elite, the 99.9% that don't make it and are left because they didn't have the opportunity to do other things of a missed out opportunity and experience of playing other sports, of meeting other people, of having those lessons that come from playing multiple sports. So, you know, once again, it gets into this moral question of what is our responsibility if we are at an early age specializing and giving elite players the opportunity to focus specifically on getting better at one sport, is it our responsibility when it doesn't work out what we are left with, that shell of a person that we are left with that didn't live up to what we thought all of that specialization was going to produce, what are we left with? I don't know. Mossy, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I often ask this question to my friends who have kids. Uh, if one of their kids exhibited a really, really special talent for a sport at a young age, would they ever consider being that type of parent like a Richard Williams who did with Venus and Serena Williams and just throw yourself into it and, and have them tell your kid they have to train several hours a day in that one sport. Uh, I mean, what, what do you, I know it's different for each, each situation, but what generally speaking, like, would you, could you ever envision yourself going that route with one of your kids? I, I would have a hard time doing that. If it was being dictated and once again, forced from me. And I'm not saying you don't push kids at times you do need a kick in the ass okay and at times you need do need somebody pushing you in to test yourself and get out of your your comfort zone but i think i think it would be hard i think it would be hard to, to see something like that and 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 once again you know the the serena thing we we don't we don't see all of the the young tennis players that went through that type of existence that serena and venus went through that didn't make it i'm just telling you that of the elite athletes that I was exposed to in my lifetime, okay, very, very few of them were in this hyper-specialized type of environment from a young age, okay? They, almost to a, a man, they were, and, and women, when I, when I uh, you know, when, I, when I've covered or I've been exposed to uh, the you know, great female players, they all had these things in their life growing up that were not specialized and they all point back to it. Now there's some that, that were focused at a young age, knew at a young age, that's what they wanted to do, excelled at it and got to whatever, whatever level. But I'm just, I, I think it is, I mean, the burnout factor and that point where sometimes you don't recognize it as a parent or as a coach when it's clicked off and it's no longer fun for that, that individual. And they feel that it's, a, it's their, I'm talking about the kids, the kids feel it's their responsibility, either to live up to something that has been ingrained to them that they somehow have to be this person, or to live up to something 
that in the eyes of their parents or their coaches or whoever they're, uh, you know, they're the people that they look up to living up to something that, that is somebody else's ideal and somebody else's definition of what success is. And then, then, then you've ruined, not only have you ruined the athlete, but to a certain extent, you've ruined a young kid and good God, if we're, if we're doing more damage by, through specialization of the kid, I'm not talking about the soccer player, then it's, it's not worth it. It's really not worth it. Mossy, anything else before we go? No, that's it. It's a, good, it's, a, it's a good question, and I'll be interested to see how in practice over at Bayern or over in Germany, if, uh, if they are doing this, you know, what this, what this looks like, because uh, it's not necessarily a, a free-for-all. And you know, once again, maybe they will be doing it as part of the specialization that comes with playing in a culture like Germany. Good questions uh, from everybody out there. Do use that uh, hashtag Ask Alexi when you are sending over those questions or ask uh, Mossy, send it out on the Twitter and the, and the Facebook and the uh, Instagram platforms out there. And we pick uh, a few each and every week and read them off like we, uh, like we just did. All right, moving on. Okay, Mossy, we continue to live in interesting times and we continue to almost daily and then even in times hourly have information coming in and out. Not a lot of it's necessarily reliable, but I think we are so desperate for any type of information out there as it relates to, uh, relates to our sport about what is happening, what isn't happening on and off the field that when it comes out, we, uh, we start to salivate. What is the latest when it comes to the leagues out there? Because we're hearing so many different things, not the least of which is the potential of the Bundesliga to be that first league that starts actually playing, not just first soccer league, but first professional league out there. And that, that possible template and pathway and canary in the coal mine situation, uh, if it goes well and fingers crossed that it goes well, but even that, on a daily basis kind of is in flux as to whether it's going to happen or not. So let the, let the folks out there know where we are as we are recording this on Sunday, May 3rd. Well, last week we talked about how the Netherlands, they pulled the plug on the 1920 season. And while they awarded Champions League and Europa League berths based on the current table, they did not award a title or do promotion relegation. This week, the French prime minister extended the ban on sporting events in France until August. So in lieu of that, uh, they've decided to pull the plug on the 1920 season, but different from the Netherlands, not only did they award Champions League and Europa League berths based on the current table, but they also crowned a champion, PSG. So congratulations to Neymar for collecting another trophy. And they also did promotion relegation, which means that Amiens and Toulouse go down, Lorient and Lens go up. But as you might expect, the two relegated teams have threatened legal action. And also Lyon are very unhappy. They, they're in seventh place. So the, the table being recognized means they're poised to miss out on Europe next season for the first time in decades. And so all those clubs have come up with arguments to say that the teams directly above them have played more home games or have had an easier schedule and different things like that to, to argue that it's unfair to, to, to recognize the table as it stands. Lyon president Jean-Michel Alos had proposed some sort of playoff system come August. He thought that was a better way to resolve things. And so that's where we are in France. So let, let's hit on that first before we move on to other countries. All right, mon ami. Uh, okay, so France, uh, <laughs> I mean, we talked about the fact that no matter what they came up with, it was not going to be fair. And no matter what they did, somebody was going to be aggrieved. And 
absolutely could make a case. And even the, the things that you mentioned of saying, well, we only played this team this many times, or we only did this this many times, we only had this many home games, and all, all of that is, is completely legitimate. But the point is, and the point has always been, that in these unprecedented times, at some point you have to do something, and it's not going to be fair for everybody. But in order to get past this, people have to make sacrifices. But then if you're the one making either the sacrifice or more of a sacrifice than others, you're going to say, hold on, that's, that's not, and what are you going to say? You're going to say, that's not fair. And you're going to come back and say, yes, but this is the least bad uh, decision uh, of a lot of bad decisions that we have out there, at least bad solution that we have out there. Now the, you know, the relegation part of it, that one I, I, I think about because I think, while I don't think necessarily that you should be given every opportunity to, to, be, to go up, I, don't, I, I think you should get every opportunity to survive uh, if you're going to split those, split those two out. So that's why I was always in favor of saying, you know what, if you're going to do the, the promotion relegation thing, don't worry about the relegation part of it. Keep the, keep the teams in because that is much more punitive and they, they, they obviously didn't want to do that. And people are going to be screaming and yelling, you know, the, the European part of the equation, I mean, that's, that's an economic thing. That's, that's all. It's not the prestige. Okay. <laughs> that's an economic situation that completely changes your budget from year to year. If you're not, if you're not doing that. Oh, and I guess it is from a competitive side, you're not able to attract the type of players that you, uh, that you want because you're not able to give them the European experience that some players are looking, are looking for. So that could be you know, problematic, but I, I, don't wor- I, don't, I don't care as much about that argument as I do about the relegation part of it. All right, let's stick with, let's stick with league. Uh, any, uh, any other thoughts there before we move on to some other leagues? Well, it's just interesting. It's going to impact our conversation about the Premier League coming up that both the Eredivisie and Ligue 1, they felt like the title and promotion relegation are intrinsically linked. Like if you're not going to do one, then you shouldn't do the other. Well, if you are going to do one, then you should do the other. So it's interesting. We've yet to see a league kind of split up those two things and say, we're fine awarding a title, but we're not going to do promotion relegation. So that, but, that's... But PSG, correct me if I'm wrong, how far ahead were they? What was the... What was the uh, I believe there? 12 points. Okay, so the only one where they didn't uh, award a title was where there was an actual title race, right? Yeah, Ajax and Azad Alkmaar were level exactly. on points, Ajax ahead on goal difference. So it, it's, it would be much harder if they awarded somebody that based on goal differential, you get the title. And I, and I think people would be up in arms right there. So it's a lot easier when somebody's ahead of the game to say you get the title. So. But so against the backdrop of all this, the Premier League held a meeting in which uh, they came out of it saying that a majority of the clubs are on the page that they should definitely try to finish the season. They're eyeing a, a mid-June return. And the plan they've come up with is all the games will take place in eight to 10 neutral venues. They've, they've, tried to stay away from stadiums that are in urban areas. They've, they've picked stadiums that are in more remote locations. They think that's safer. And they said a majority of the clubs support that as well. So there is more or less a plan in place and some consensus that, that that's the, the way moving forward. However, the wrinkle that's been thrown in here is some of the clubs in the bottom of the table have argued, okay, we'll, we'll play out these remaining games under these circumstances, but we shouldn't do relegation because it's unfair to relegate a team under these circumstances, which to me is, I'm sorry, it's, it's a little bit bizarre 
you know, it's like, we'll play the game so we can collect the television money, but the results don't really count. And then what's the point from a sporting perspective? What's the point of even playing them? I, I don't know. To me, that, that's a little bit of a weird needle to try to thread, but I, mean, I don't know. It sounds like you might yeah, just... Yeah, if you're, if you're going to play the actual games, which we all know, I understand it's not, not fair, okay? But if you're going to actually play the games, then accept the consequences of, of, of what's going on. And you can whine and scream and, and do all that. And at times you will be justified and you'll have people that come to your come to your defense, but if you're gonna actually play the games. But this, this neutral venue uh, scenario, I think is, is really interesting and, and intriguing, uh, not just over in Europe, if, if this happens, and not just for soccer, but we've heard Major League Baseball talk about these types of uh, things. And you know, first off, you know, how do you pick what that venue uh, is or what that city or area is? And what are the, what are the criteria that you need? Obviously, fields uh you're gonna need fields you're gonna need accommodations because i was trying to think of places in the united states and canada uh that would suffice and would be possibilities out there and maybe if if, uh, if you're listening to this you know, to send us what you think if we, if there were neutral venues for a league like mls what what would those venues be what or what cities do you think would be appropriate for uh for something like that. And we all know that it's not going to be perfect. It's certainly not, not ideal. But if that were to happen, I think there would be some interest. Yes, it would be a curiosity. And yes, it would be a unique temporary type of season. And maybe we would look at it as spring type of training or preseason type of thing, which often happens in some of these, some of these venues and some of these places and another a number of different leagues. But I am intrigued as to where that happens and what behind the scenes the criteria are for picking these, you know, these cities and these venues going forward. So, so EPL is, is looking at that as a scenario, Correct. right? Yeah. It is interesting to me when you ask any fair-minded person in a vacuum about Liverpool, they say that they should win the title, but when you attach it to other things, you say, well, if you give Liverpool a title, then you have to relegate teams as well. Then they say, Ooh, I don't know. Maybe we don't do promotion relegation, but then Leeds United fans are upset. They're saying, wait a minute, why are you rewarding Liverpool for the season they had, but not us that they're, who they're leading the championship. Then you say, okay, maybe we will do promotion, just not relegation. We'll have 22 or 23 teams next season. But then there, there are teams in lower divisions that were leading their league and those seasons were voided completely. And they say, wait a minute, why are Leeds United getting promoted? And we didn't. And so you just keep going. You know what I mean? When you, when you just talk about Liverpool in a vacuum, like I said, unless you're just a completely delusional Everton or Manchester United fan, I think everybody recognizes the right thing would be for Liverpool to win the title. But it does get trickier when you say, well, if you're going to recognize first place, you've got to recognize the other positions too. And then the domino effect of, of that. And once you get into promotion, relegation and such. So it's, it's, it is very complicated. It is a mess. <laughs> this is a mess. The only thing that I know is nobody knows anything. And this is a big old mess. Uh, what about uh, Bundesliga? What's going yeah. on over there? What, so, what, so what's the latest? Has something changed so, since we got, we, uh, we started recording. Yes. So the, the Bundesliga, they're still saying they're on track for a return sometime in May. Now, May 9 is not going to happen. That was the original date proposed, but the government pushed back by a week, a meeting where they were going to, uh, review this proposal. And so it, it's now time-wise, there's no way they could, they could, even if it gets approved, there's no way they could start up by May 9, but they're still hoping for some time in May. Now there was a, a curveball this past week. The teams have been training in small groups and Cologne announced that three members of their, of their club. Now it, it's unclear how many were players, how many were staff or whatnot, but three members of their club uh, tested positive for coronavirus. 
And immediately when I saw this headline, I thought, oh my God, this is going to be a major setback. But then I read articles later today that said, no, it's still full speed ahead on the current plan. They still feel good about it. So who the heck knows? But nevertheless, uh, that's where we are as far as Germany. Well, two things uh, come to mind when I, when I hear that. One, it doesn't matter whether they're players or not, because this is about the safety of everybody is in, that is involved in that moment. And two, this is not about having 100% safety, because that can never be guaranteed, okay, in terms of people being infected. You do the absolute most and the best that you can. First off, you come to an agreement that this is something that we are going to do with a recognized and accepted inherent risks of doing something like this. But the, the powers that be have to decide that the risks are acceptable or they're at an acceptable level. And so then you have to recognize that at some point, somebody is going to get infected either on or off the field that, that is involved in this thing. So what is your protocol? What, how are you dealing with this? And so in a strange way, the reaction to what happened uh, with uh, these, these, uh, these, we don't know what players, we don't know who they were, but the reaction that happened was almost a test case on how they're going to deal with it in terms of identifying it early, getting the people the help and the, the, uh, the health attention that they, that they need, obviously completely isolating them from anybody else because it's going to happen again. And maybe it gave them a little glimpse into whether this can work or not. And maybe they came out the other side and said, it can work because this is how we are going to deal with it. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a massive explosion or anything like that, but it's still, I mean, there's, this is a fine line type of thing, Mossy, where th that risk. And, you know, I said, what the, what is the acceptable risk level? Uh, and everybody probably has to decide it for themselves and everybody, every country has to decide it. And then, Relative to that, when it comes to something like entertainment, which is what we're talking about here, they have to decide what that acceptable risk is. And the players have to. And we've, we're hearing players and players' representation coming out at different times and saying, hey, we're not necessarily on board with this and we are concerned about this. And first, if you don't have the buy-in from the players, then you got, then this is a no-go from the start. I'm not just talking about the Bundesliga. I'm talking about wherever you happen. If and when you're back to playing, if you don't have the buy-in with the players and they don't feel that their safety is paramount and that they don't feel safe doing this. And once again, by feeling safe doesn't mean that nobody's going to get infected, but feeling safe is we've done everything humanly possible to make this situation as safe as we possibly can with the understanding that we can't have a hundred percent safety until, until that, if you don't have that, then you got, uh, then you got big problems going on. Awesome. And then one last thing for me, FIFA are proposing, and, and it sounds like IFAB is going to rubber stamp this, that when play does eventually resume, for the foreseeable future, they're going to change it from three substitutions per team to five. Now, it, you're still, each team is only still going to be allowed three stoppages of play for subs, but you can make up to five subs during those right. stoppages. Reason being, they just feel like you're going to have to cram so many games here during a short period of time, and players might not be in the ideal physical shape. And so that, that it's only right to allow teams to make uh, more substitutions than usual. I love that because I look at that as one of those things that's going to get thrown on the wall and it's going to stick. Not just in a temporary sticking situation, but even beyond what we have uh, right here. I think people are going to see it for the value that it gets. You know, I know my, my friend Stu Holden doesn't believe in it at all. I look at it as you get more talent on the field. So just from a pure 
customer perspective, if I'm paying money, the last thing in the world I want to see is talent wasted away sitting on the bench and not getting on the field. So you get more opportunity for talent to play. Does it change the, the, the strategy? Uh, yes. And as a matter of fact, in talking to, uh, uh, to Jurgen Klopp, uh, you know, he talked about how he's already thinking about how it may change his substitution patterns. It may change, well, obviously it'll change his substitution patterns, but how it may change tactically how he goes about uh, managing uh, managing a game. But that's that's oh, you know, that's that's okay. I don't think that it. Compl- well, first off, the stoppages that you mentioned are important because you don't want constant stoppages. But the actual numbers of players that are able to come in, I think that's a I think that's a good thing. And I think looking. There will be a time when we look back and say, well, you know, this was something that came out of a horrible situation, and yet it was something that we didn't realize that we wanted or didn't realize how beneficial it is to our sport. So I think that's, uh, that's, that's definitely going to, to happen. I think that goes well beyond a temporary uh, situation. Anything else out there, Mossy, with regards to the leagues that are going on? That is it. We have no MLS type of, uh, type of update other than – we're recording this on May 3rd, and coming up on May 5th, players have been allowed to return to the training facilities if it's appropriate in, in the market they are in uh, and train individually, and there's all sorts of protocol in terms of what uh, they are able to do. That's the only MLS update we have. I do think that, that MLS, like, like a lot of leagues out there, are kind of looking for best practices out there, which is why everyone is so focused on uh, what's happening over there in Germany with the, with the Bundesliga. And if it goes off, well, it is a little apples and oranges and, and it's, but there may be some best practices that can be taken. Uh, if not all of them, then some of them or portion of them uh, that, that are used from what comes out of uh, comes out of Germany. All right, Mossy, ready to uh, finish this up here? Yep. All right. So at the end of every podcast, uh, we give you our one for the road and uh, we want to, uh, wrap it around a uh, you know, wonderful announcement if you look at it because we over here at Fox and in particular at uh, Fox Sports Digital, there are incredible men and women that work very, very hard. And for those of you that uh, watched the World Cups last couple of summers uh, and certainly last summer when uh, Mossy and I were running around uh, France for the Women's World Cup, you know about the, the constant diet of digital content that we are putting out there. And that has been uh, recognized in that we are nominated for what they call a Webby Award for our coverage last summer in Paris of the uh, 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup. Uh, We all played a role in this uh, and we all were cranking out talent and writing for talent and cranking out the content and coming up with that content and writing for content. All of that kind of stuff uh, was done on a consistent basis. And it is a, it is a well-oiled machine after a couple of weeks when it comes to a World Cup. And the digital component, I'm not telling you anything that you guys uh, don't know who are listening or watching out there, has become so important and so valuable and it's not a separate type of thing. It's all part of everything that we do. And it's become much more an integral part of everything that we do as opposed to this satellite uh, type of thing. So we're really proud of the digital content that we put out, not just with soccer, but with everything. But we have been nominated for this uh, Webby, which is uh, the awards uh, and a prestigious award that recognizes it. So I got something here that says, if you did enjoy what we did, uh, and I hope that you did, 
we'd love for you to go to vote.webbyawards.com. And Webby is spelled W-E-B-B-Y. So vote.webbyawards.com. And vote to support all of our, uh, all of our entries. We were nominated for Best Overall Social Coverage. Uh, our nightly digital show was nominated, Fox Sports World Cup Now. And we were nominated for the digital feature that we did uh, on Brandy Chastain. We looked, we looked back 20 years on her famous game-winning PK uh, that won the 1999 Women's World Cup. So we'd appreciate if you were to vote for us. If you, uh, if you like us, like I said, go to vote.webbyawards.com. That's our one for the road uh, in terms of information there. But it got me thinking back to last summer. And if you have followed us for any length of time uh, and you did go through our, our incredible adventure last summer, uh, whether it was uh, Mossy's uh, you know, interesting accommodations, whether it was uh, Mossy using the incredible wealth of knowledge he has when it comes to, uh, to French and using the French that he had learned to communicate with any and all over, uh, uh, over there. It seems like ages ago, it was not that long ago, Mossy, that we were uh, running along the Seine, the Seine uh, there and basking in a glorious summer in Paris involving the uh, the World Cup and having such a wonderful time and working very, very hard. Uh, but it's we shouldn't even call it work because it, uh, it was so much fun to be able to do. Any, uh, almost a year on now, Mossy, any thoughts or any recollections that come to mind when it comes to last summer? Uh, it was the best experience of my professional life. You know, I, I did a semester abroad in Europe when I was in college, but I was young and stupid then and only cared about sports and girls. And I've since become a lot more cultured, a lot more history buffy, and a lot more appreciative of all these, you know, famous sites. And so, and I learned a lot of lessons in Moscow in 2018. Uh, I didn't always budget my time great there between work and the sightseeing. And so I, I was able to apply all the lessons I learned in 2019 in Paris. And so it was just, it was great. I got to do all the sightseeing stuff more than I ever imagined. And I, Paris is my favorite city in the world. So it was just incredible. And then, as you mentioned, the work was very rewarding to be part of that amazing team and uh, so, I mean, the fact that I could have an experience like that and even like win an Emmy out of it is just, it's just the icing on the cake. I echo all of those, uh, those thoughts. It was, it was an incredible experience. And look, you don't do it for, uh, for recognition, but it's nice to be uh, recognized. And you know, while, while I am certainly oftentimes the, the person in front of the camera and, you know, they put on the makeup and they put the lighting and makeup and lighting are very, very important. There are so many people out uh, that are behind the camera that are, oftentimes making me look good. And that is not easy. And whether it's you know, Mossy writing stuff, uh, whether it's all the men and women, whether it's audio or camera or in the booth, uh, or like I said, makeup, wardrobe, all the different folks that are making us, uh, making us look good. And from a digital perspective, we know that there has to be a consistent diet. And being involved in a, uh, in a World Cup is one thing. Being involved in a World Cup where you have the best team and ultimately the team that wins the World Cup, that helps, that helps out a lot. But you still got to be able to uh, identify the stories, either stories ahead of time and then in real time to be able to do it. And we have such a great digital team that is able to not just identify those stories, get the content done, and then turn it around and make sure that it's on a consistent level of quality to entertain and to inform, uh, as I said. So congratulations to everybody uh, that was involved last summer just for being nominated. Uh, if you can vote for us, that would be great.
Um, we need, uh, we need all the help, uh, that you can get. If you don't want to vote for us, that's cool. As long as you're listening, that's, uh, that's what we want. Mossy, anything, uh, before we head off into the uh, great unknown here? No, that's it. All right. We thank you, uh, each and every week for tuning in and listening and watching to the state of the uh, union podcast. It is a privilege and honor to be able to do it for you. You know, this too shall pass. I do believe that, uh, not without pain, but we're all going through this together. And I hope you and yours are staying safe and sane and continuing to do the things to keep yourselves and others safe. And at some point, uh, I can't wait to stop doing Zoom and actually be with human beings in a social setting and have some drinks and have some good food. And most importantly, have some interactions with, uh, with human beings that don't involve a screen. But until that time, this is the, this is the best that we can do. And it's keeping us uh, connected. And uh, I hope that you are keeping connected with people out there, either people that you uh, do on a continual basis or somebody that you just reach out to because everybody needs that type of connection and that type of relationship and that communication, maybe more so now than, uh, than ever. All right, Mossy, I will see you next week. I will see everybody uh, next week here on the State of the Union podcast. Download, review, rate, subscribe, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, all the different things that are, uh, that are out there, YouTube, all the stuff out there. We appreciate all of uh, your support when it comes to the State of the Union podcast. We will see you again next week. And as always, size the day. <laughs>